Hello, dreamers, and welcome to the show. As always, I would like to thank you for being a loyal listener, and I have just a couple of notes about this podcast before we get started. This is an independent, ad-free show, which means I depend solely on the listeners for growth and support, and there are a number of ways that you can help. Follow the show on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Spread the word by recommending us to fellow true crime podcast listeners. And if you can leave a rating and a review on whichever directory you listen to your shows on, that gives us more visibility and drives us up the charts. And if you just can't get enough of me talking your ear off about all things murdery, then you can access exclusive full-length episodes that you won't hear anywhere else by subscribing to Patreon. And that starts at only $1 a month. I mean, what can you get for a dollar right now, right? You're even screwed at the Dollar Tree. And if a subscription isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation using PayPal with my email, californiapod at gmail.com, and you can find the links to everything in the show notes. All right, let's get to today's case. In case you are new to the show or came here because you were looking for podcasts, that are discussing the quadruple murders that took place at the University of Idaho on November 13th, 2022, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to my episode. From the title of this podcast, you probably guessed that we typically focus on cases in California or ones that have a California connection. Occasionally, though, over the years, we've done what are referred to as vacation series episodes, where we talk about cases and events in other states and countries, especially if there is something that is of particular interest or high profile. This is a particularly horrible story out of the beautiful state of Idaho. It is yet another high-profile tragedy out of that state in recent years, unfortunately. And since the arrest of a suspect recently and the release of the probable cause affidavit, it seemed like the right time for me to break my silence on this unfolding tragedy. I'm going to go through the timeline, and as I go along, I'm going to go over some key points in the probable cause affidavit that came out the first week of the new year. I believe it was released on January 5th. What's today's date? Today is the 8th, so it's just been about three days. In the early morning hours of November 13th, 2022, four University of Idaho students, 20-year-old Ethan Chapin, 20-year-old Zana Kernodal, 21-year-old Kaylee Guncalves, and 21-year-old Madison Mogan, were stabbed to death in an off-campus house that Zana, Kaylee, and Madison shared with other roommates. Ethan was Zana's boyfriend. He was staying the night that evening, but he did not officially live there. The university is located in Moscow, Idaho, which is a part of the Panhandle. It is in the northwestern part of the state, and its westernmost border is also the border with the state of Washington. The evening before the killings, on Saturday, November 12th, lifelong best friends Kaylee and Madison had gone out to a local bar called the Corner Club. When I looked at maps, I found the bar to be about a seven-minute drive away from their house. Ethan and Zana had gone together to a party at the Sigma Chi fraternity house, which looks like on maps that it could be very easily walked to 
if they cut across the area behind the frat house. I looked at the street view from where their house was located on King Road, and looking towards the fraternity, I could see the back of the house. There wasn't a fence or anything. There's a basketball court and what looked to be some football uprights. So yeah, there's nothing blocking them from walking from their house on King Road onto the Sigma Chi property. Meanwhile, two other roommates who also lived at the shared house, Dylan Mortensen and Bethany Funk, were also out that evening in Moscow and had returned home at approximately 1 a.m. Madison and Kaylee were at the corner club from 10 p.m. to 1.30 a.m. Ethan and Zana were at the Sigma Chi party from approximately 9 p.m. and they returned home around 1.45 a.m. Madison and Kaylee were captured on a live stream at the Grub Truck Food Truck at 1.41 a.m. They ordered food and were seen on this live stream talking and smiling. They received their food about 10 minutes later and then were given a ride home by what police have referred to as a private party. At the beginning of the investigation, it was said that they took an Uber. It has since been changed to a private party. They arrived home at 1.56 a.m. The person who gave them a ride home was investigated and eliminated as a suspect. His name has been redacted in the affidavit. Between 2.26 and 2.52 a.m., seven unanswered phone calls were made from Kaylee's phone to Jack DeCour, an ex-boyfriend who was also a student at the university. Three unanswered calls were made from Madison's phone that were also made to Jack's phone from 2.44 to 2.52 a.m. This ex-boyfriend was interviewed and investigated and was subsequently eliminated as having any involvement in the murders. At approximately 4 a.m., Zana received a food delivery from DoorDash. It is believed that the murders took place within a very short window of time between 4 a.m. after the DoorDash delivery and 4.25 a.m. So within a period of about 25 minutes, Ethan, Zana, Madison, and Kaylee were murdered. The probable cause affidavit was released on January 5th, and the information in it was provided by Moscow Police Department Corporal Brett Payne. From this point forward, I'm going to be referring to him as Corporal Payne. It was with the assistance of the Idaho State Police and the FBI that he put this affidavit together. Corporal Payne responded to 1122 King Road at some time around 4 p.m. the afternoon of Sunday, November 13th, approximately 12 hours after the killings were believed to have taken place, to help with the processing of the crime scene involving the four homicides. So I'm going to try to explain the layout of the house. On social media, I did post a diagram that I made a couple days ago while I was working on this episode, but there was one mistake that I made, and I'll put a correction up after I'm finished with this, and it might help for you to look at my diagram if you can while I'm going through the layout of the house because it's pretty confusing. From the front, when you enter through the front door of the home, it takes you into the first floor of the house. The stairs are to the immediate left upon entering. There is a hallway in the middle of this level and a bathroom also in the middle. There is a bedroom to the left and a bedroom to the right. None of the victims were killed on this level. 
The second level of the home also has ground level access, but that access is in the rear of the house, not the front. So this house, from what I can guess, is sort of built on maybe a small hill or some kind of incline. And around the back and to the right, there's a patio with a sliding glass door that leads to the inside of the second floor of the home. Immediately upon entering through the sliding glass door, it takes you into the kitchen. To the right, there is a second set of stairs, as well as a third bedroom. To the left, there is a bathroom and a fourth bedroom. Those bedrooms are caddy corner or diagonal from one another, and caddy corner to the kitchen is the living room and the first set of stairs that leads directly down to the first floor and the front door. So I hope that's clear. Both the first floor and second floors of the home have ground level access because of the way this house is constructed. With the first floor ground level being at the front of the house and the second floor ground access being at the back of the house with a sliding glass door. The third floor of the home is accessible only by one set of stairs and that would be the set that takes you down to the second level next to the kitchen. You have to cross the second floor living room to the other side of the stairs in order to get down to the first floor. The second set of stairs are split by a landing. It appears to be the only set of stairs that has a midway landing like that. The stairs are in the middle of the floor, as is the hallway. To the left on the third level, there's a bathroom and a fifth bedroom. And to the right is the sixth and final bedroom, which also has a sliding glass door and a deck that is located directly above the second floor sliding door and patio. This deck overlooks the back of the house and has no ground access to it. Each one of these levels and bedrooms, from what I could see, had their pluses and their minuses, right? The two bedrooms on the first level appear to be the largest rooms, and it also seems to have the largest bathroom too with very convenient access from the front door to the ground level. The second floor has the smallest bedrooms and the smallest bathroom, but this level has the living room, kitchen, and convenient access to the ground level entrance to the back patio. The third floor has the room that I would have loved and probably would have had to have fought for and pay more money for. To the right side, it has one of the largest bedrooms and that room has a sliding glass door that takes you out onto the deck. The bedroom to the left is not as small as the second floor rooms, but is much smaller than the room across the hallway. But that room has the bathroom right next to it. This whole place looks like it would have been a lot of fun for these friends and roommates to live in together. And with the three levels, it seems to give everybody a reasonable amount of privacy as well. Okay, so getting back to the affidavit, Colonel Payne entered the house on the first floor through the front door, which faced to the north. There were no victims found on this level. He went up the stairs and was directed towards the bedroom to his right or to the west side of the house, which was determined to be Zana's bedroom. He passed the bathroom that was on his left, and as he got closer to the bedroom door, he saw Zana's body laying on the floor. She was deceased and had injuries that appeared to have been made by a sharp-edged weapon. Ethan was also found dead inside the same bedroom, 
also with injuries inflicted with a sharp-edged weapon. Corporal Payne then went up to the third floor. The bedroom, also on the west side, that would have been the one with the sliding glass door and the deck, that was Kaylee's room. When police first arrived on the scene, they found a really cute dog named Murphy inside this bedroom. Murphy, who looks to me to be some kind of doodle, was being co-parented by Kaylee and Jack, who were broken up at the time of the killings. So yeah, the maniac who did this, for some reason, spared the puppy. At some point, Jack did come, and he took Murphy home. The smaller room across the hall on the southeast corner of the house belonged to Madison. As Corporal Payne entered the bedroom belonging to Madison, he saw her and Kaylee laying on the bed. They were both deceased. He could see that they both had stab wounds. And he also saw that next to Madison on the bed, on her right side, if you were looking at her from the doorway of the bedroom, there was a tan leather knife sheath. When this knife sheath was processed at the lab later on, it was found to have K-Bar, USMC, and the Marine Corps insignia printed on the outside of it. Now, dreamers, this may have been the first time for some of you to have ever heard of a K-Bar. And, you know, it may have very well been my first time, too, if it had not been for a very recent episode I did entitled Eater's Story. There are some of you who don't really like those first-person narratives that I do on occasion. You recognize them by the way that I title them, so you're able to skip over them. But if you don't have an aversion to those style of episodes, and you listen to Eater's Story, then that may have been the first time that you ever heard of a K-Bar, as it was my first time because that was the murder weapon of choice for the serial killer at the center of that case. He had been in the Marines for maybe about four years or so, but when he got out, he was so dissatisfied with his time in the service because, as he said, he never got to kill anybody. So he decided to fulfill that dream of his, I guess, and his weapon of choice was his K-Bar, which is a very heavy, fixed-bladed knife. You don't have to be in the military to have one of the knives that this K-Bar company manufactures, but it seems to me that if you had one that had the Marine Corps insignia printed on it, you were either in the Marines or somebody close to you was. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't pick this knife up at a swap meet or a thrift store or even a pawn shop, right? So the question as to where this knife came from has not yet been determined or if it has been we haven't been told and the knife itself has not been recovered but the sheath to it was right there next to madison's body so along with the insignia being identified by the lab when this sheath was examined it also located a single source of male dna recovered from the button snap a dna profile was developed and as many of you already know, has been definitively linked to a suspect. It is important to know that the DNA is not the only evidence investigators have against their suspect, but it's pretty much the damningest. 
It goes to show that no matter how much of a brainiac, smarty pants, master degree in criminology having PhD student that you are, you're still so stupid for leaving this knife sheath behind. You might as well have left your business card with your name and your phone number and your address and directions where to arrest you. No, you might as well have just driven yourself over to the precinct and turned your dumbass in, dumbass. Corporal Payne learned that at the time that the murders took place, the two roommates who resided in the home who survived the attacks were Bethany Funk and Dylan Mortensen. Bethany's bedroom was located on the first floor of the house. Hers was the room on the east side or to the left when you walked in through the front door. Both Dylan and Bethany were interviewed numerous times by the Moscow Police Department, the Idaho State Police, and the FBI. Corporal Payne reviewed all of their interviews and made the following determinations. The evening before the murders, Saturday, November 12th, Bethany saw Ethan and Zana at the Sigma Chi frat party for several hours. Bethany estimated that the two of them returned to the house around 1.45 in the morning. She said that Zana lived there, but Ethan was visiting. He was not an official resident of the house. Both Dylan and Bethany indicated that everyone who lived in the house was home by 2 a.m. and they were either asleep or in their rooms by 4 a.m. The only exception to this was Zana, who received a DoorDash order at 4 a.m. The DoorDash driver was identified and was the one who confirmed this information. In her statements to investigators, Dylan said that she went to sleep in her bedroom, which was located on the second floor and is the room on the southeast side of that level. That would be the room right next to the second set of stairs that only has access to the third floor, not to the first floor. When standing at her bedroom door, Dylan would be looking straight across towards the kitchen with the sliding glass door that was the exit to the ground-level patio outside. Dylan stated that at approximately 4 a.m., she was awoken by the sounds of what she believed to be Kaylee playing with Murphy in one of the bedrooms upstairs on the floor above hers. It wasn't stated in the affidavit, but I assume that she must have heard noises coming from Murphy, perhaps barking or growling. She perhaps heard some commotion, which led her to think that Kaylee was playing with him. A short time later, Dylan stated that she heard who she thought was Kaylee saying something like, there's someone in here. Now, a forensic examination of Zana's phone was made, and its data showed that she was likely using her phone and accessing her TikTok app around 4.12 in the morning. Corporal Payne insinuated in the affidavit that the sounds Dylan heard could have been coming from a random TikTok that Zana and or Ethan may have been watching, because Lord knows those videos can be aggressively loud. At that point, Dylan stated that she peered out of her bedroom but did not see anything after she heard someone saying something about someone being inside the house. Dylan said that she later opened her door a second time when she thought she heard what sounded like crying coming from Zana's room, which was diagonally across the second floor from her bedroom. Dylan then said that she heard a male voice say something to the effect of, It's okay, I'm going to help you. Dylan then stated that she opened her door for a third time after she heard crying and in doing so, she saw a male figure dressed in black clothing and a mask that covered his mouth and nose. As this man was walking towards her, 
she could see that he was approximately 5 foot 10 inches tall or 1.7 meters. He was not very muscular, but with an athletic build and bushy eyebrows. This man walked past Dylan as she stood there, frozen and in shock. Then she observed him walk towards the back sliding glass door that is located on that second floor leading to the outside ground level. Dylan then locked herself in her room after seeing this man. She did not recognize him, and based on her statements, investigators believe that Dylan witnessed the murderer leaving their house. Based on the information investigators gathered from Dylan's statements and after gathering data from her phone and from Bethany Fung's phone, and videos obtained from what law enforcement have described as a video canvas, gathering any videos from the areas surrounding the crime scene, from things such as ring doorbells or surveillance cameras that are pretty much all over the place. And in addition to witness statements, investigators had a pretty narrow window of time to work with when it came to looking at the video data since they were able to determine that the murders took place between 4 and 4.25 in the morning. A security camera located at a home right next to the house where the four victims were murdered picked up a distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper followed by a loud thud at 4.17 a.m. This camera also picked up the sounds of a dog barking numerous times, which began at the same time, 4.17 a.m. The security camera was installed on the house next door and it was less than 50 feet from the west wall of Zana's bedroom. Directly above her bedroom on the third floor would have been Kaylee's room in which the dog was closed in and by himself. The affidavit will talk more about the results of this video canvas conducted by investigators. As a result of the processing of the crime scene, investigators discovered a latent shoe print. And in case you don't know, latent means like not really visible to the naked eye as if they needed to apply alternate light sources or chemicals in order for the shoe print to become visible and photographable. The shoe print was not found the first time around that the crime scene was processed. It was in fact discovered upon a second examination and processing of the crime scene. The shoe print had a distinctive diamond shaped pattern that is said to be similar to the pattern of a van's sole. Most of us, if not all of us, know exactly what this pattern looks like. It was found right outside Dylan's bedroom, and it matched up to, with her statement regarding the male suspect's path of travel through the second floor of the house. So getting back to the video canvas, this was an extensive search that was conducted in the area surrounding the house where these murders took place in order to obtain any footage that they could find from the early morning hours of Sunday, November 13th. And it would not just be around the house, but this would be a search that extended well past that area into the surrounding streets and neighborhoods in an effort to try and locate a suspect or a suspect vehicle that may have been captured on video traveling to the crime scene and then leaving from it. As a result of this video canvas, numerous surveillance videos were gathered from both residential and business cameras. After Corporal Payne, as well as other Moscow Police Department officials, Idaho State Police officers, and FBI investigators carefully reviewed and collected the footage, they were able to identify a suspect vehicle, a white sedan. The affidavit gives you the streets and locations where the car was seen, but I had to look it up on maps because I need visuals. 
So I'll tell you the distances away from the crime scene that these videos were found so you have a better idea and you don't have to open up your Maps app. So there was a camera located on the 700 block of Indian Hills Drive, which is approximately 1.3 miles or a little more than two kilometers east of the crime scene or about a four minute drive. This was at 3.26 a.m., about 34 minutes before the estimated time the killings began. So, 34 minutes before the murders were about to start, this white sedan was driving in the victim's direction, only four minutes away. A second camera located at a street called Steiner Avenue, where it intersected with State Highway 95, captured the same white sedan two minutes later, also still traveling westbound. This corner is a little bit less than three-fourths of a mile or 1.1 kilometers away or a three-minute drive from the crime scene. So clearly this white sedan was advancing towards the victim's house from the east within the city of Moscow. In the second video, it was noted that the car did not have a front license plate. Now, it varies from state to state whether or not your car needs to have two license plates, one in the front and one in the rear. All cars have to have it in the rear, but not all states require cars to have a front license plate. In California, I had to have two license plates on my cars all my life. However, since I moved to Nevada three years ago and bought a car here, I was only required to have one. The state of Idaho requires two. It will become relevant to the case as we go along, but because we're on the topic, I want you to note that the state of Washington requires two license plates also, but the state of Pennsylvania requires only one rear license plate. Pennsylvania is going to become a pivotal part of this case, even though it's like 2,500 miles away. There were several videos gathered from the neighborhood along the same street as the house where the murders took place, which was on King Road. The affidavit refers to it as the King Road house, but it's easier for me to just keep calling it the crime scene or the victim's house. There were multiple sightings of the suspect vehicle, this white sedan, on King Road starting at 3.29 a.m. and ending at 4.20 a.m. That pretty much falls in line exactly with all the other evidence data and witness statements as to the time frame when the murders took place. So yeah, this white sedan was on their street and cameras all over the place were capturing it. How's about that, Mr. PhD criminology student? It looks like he missed the day when they went over video canvassing a class, huh? Remember, my dreamers, it doesn't matter how many degrees you have or how many letters you have after your name, you can still very much be a dumbass. Okay, so you know now we know that this vehicle is a Hyundai Elantra. I'll tell you more about how it was identified later on. I drive a Hyundai, right? And I have the bigger sedan, the Sonata, and it's gray. And seriously, I see my exact style of car all over the place. I mean, it's so common. The color is common. I see Elantras all the time, too, often with the same dark gray color as my car. I see all shades of silvers and browns and tans, you know, those basic factory colors that these cars all come in. But to be honest, I really don't see white 
that all that often, either in the Sonata or the Elantra. I mean, now that I'm bringing it up, I'll probably see white Elantras all over the place. But seriously, though, I drive a Hyundai, so I see them a lot. So for a guy who figured, okay, I'm going to break into this house. I got to wear all black, but I got to drive my bright, shiny white car through the night in front of all the cameras for the world to see with his single front license plate that's extremely uncommon in the state of Idaho. I mean, all of this is just dumb, dumb, dumb. But anyway, this white sedan was captured on video making three initial passes by the house where the murders happened. This was going on in the time frame between 3.29 a.m. and 4.04 a.m. So this bright white car is passing by the crime scene three times and then leaving by way of a street called Walenta Avenue. On maps, this is a street that's right next to the street that the victims lived on. I mean, it's really close. There is only one small row of three houses that separates the two streets. If you were living in one of those houses, when you went to the front of your house, you would be looking at Walenta Drive. And when you went to the back of the house, you would be looking at King Road. So it's very close and compact. Corporal Payne wrote in the affidavit, quote, Based on my experience as a patrol officer, this is a residential neighborhood with a very limited number of vehicles that travel in the area during the early morning hours. Upon review of the video, there are only a few cars that enter and exit this area during this time frame. So, Mr. Brainiac PhD driving his bright white car is doing everything he possibly can do to make himself as conspicuous as he possibly can. Brilliant, right? So then, according to the affidavit, this white sedan came back to the area for a fourth time at 4.04 a.m. This is just four minutes after Zana received her DoorDash order and 13 minutes before those sounds were captured on the video camera situated on the house next door. The vehicle was seen driving eastbound on the street that the victims lived on. It stopped and turned in front of a residence on Queen Road. When I put these addresses into maps, this is only 30 feet or 9 meters away from the victim's house, the spot where this car turned around. The victim's house appears to be behind some other houses on King Road. And you know how we talked about how the first level of the home has outside ground access level at the front? Those other houses are situated so that or it seems to me on the maps, when you walk out the front door of the victim's house, you would be looking at the back of those houses. They're kind of grouped together right in the front. But remember, the back of the victim's house has ground level access on the second level. And that appears to take you out to Queen Road, almost right where the affidavit said that the white sedan was turning around. It definitely looks like that there's more privacy at the back of the house, and that is where surviving roommate Dylan observed the killer exiting the home, through that sliding glass door that led out to the patio and out to where this U-turn appears to have been made or close to it. The affidavit then states, when suspect vehicle is in front of the King Road residence or the victim's home, it appears to unsuccessfully attempt to park or turn around in the road. The vehicle then continued to the intersection of Queen Road and King Road, 
where it can be seen completing a three-point turn and then driving eastbound again down Queen Road. <sighs> okay, this guy doesn't really seem to be making any efforts to not appear suspicious. I mean, think about it. Living on a relatively quiet neighborhood street at four in the morning, and this car is making all these drive-bys and U-turns and turnarounds and three-point turns, it can look really strange, but it can only look strange if anyone is awake to see it. We also know that DoorDash was just there. Perhaps food deliveries and confused delivery people can go back and forth looking for your house, right? Maybe it's not as strange as it sounds on the surface, but we know how the story ends. It's strange and suspicious now because four people were killed within a few minutes after this white sedan was going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth again around the victim's house. And for him to think that his car would not be captured on video or to not even think about video at all is just so dumb. And oh, wait until we get to his cell phone data information. If you think this guy's driving is dumb, wait until you see what Mr. PhD was doing with his phone, not just on this night, but for at least a dozen nights across the fall semester. Another thing I thought was stupid that this guy did was making a three-point turn. I mean, I kind of chuckled to myself when I read that in the affidavit. The only thing more conspicuous that this guy could have done was turned his car around by going into somebody's driveway and shining his headlights straight into someone's house while trying to make all of these back-and-forth passes by the victim's home. I wondered about that for a moment when I was going through the affidavit. Like, why is this guy doing this? And while I can't possibly get into the mind of this person, because, you know, he's such an advanced thinker going for his PhD and all, right? But I tried, and I figured that maybe he was doing perhaps one of two things. He could have been casing the house, going by several times if there was anyone around or anything else going on outside or nearby the house, since we know what he was planning to go and do in there. He may have seen the DoorDash driver. And at first I thought, this guy should have left if he saw these girls getting a food delivery, right? He's coming there at four in the morning, so it leads me to believe that he had some knowledge about when these girls would most likely be asleep, that it might not be likely for them to be awake at four in the morning, but seeing them get a DoorDash should have alerted him to the fact that they were, in fact, still awake and that this may not be the best time to go in and try to attack somebody if you wanted to do it while they were sleeping. But then again, considering the way the house was situated behind other houses, I thought maybe the killer did see the door dash driver's car, but didn't necessarily see where the delivery was going to. But in the end, we don't know if the suspect saw the DoorDash driver. We don't even know if the DoorDash driver saw him either. But either way, he did go in and he did do what he did. The other thing that I thought that may have been going on here with this driving back and forth and turning around is the possibility that this guy may not have been familiar with the layout of these small streets. King Road, you know, the one that the victim's house was located on, 
as well as the other small short streets surrounding it. King Road and all the little streets that are around it are dead-end streets. They're all one way in and one way out. So as the killer is driving by their home numerous times, the only way to go back and forth is to make U-turns and three-point turns. The bigger streets that are not dead ends that go through, there is no really fast and easy way to circle around and keep coming back to King Road. And King Road itself is very small. There are only three houses on each side of the street before it dead ends. And the victim's house appears to be tucked behind one of those houses on the east side of the street. So it would be very conspicuous for this guy to try to get a good look at the victim's house from his car just by driving by, especially under the darkness of night. So the last of those series of turns and passes by King Road and back onto Queen Road happened, which would have been in front of and in back of the victim's house. To me, it kind of sounded like the suspect's actions were akin to like a bird circling their prey. The last of those passes happened at 4.04 a.m. The next significant moment captured on video happened 16 minutes later at 4.20 a.m. The suspect vehicle was seen leaving the area of the victim's home at a high rate of speed. We can't say for sure, but we can assume that the adrenaline level is strong because a quadruple stabbing just took place. I mean, Mr. Cool, Calm, Collected, PhD student, as we've seen him in his court appearances since his arrest, seems to be having a little bit of trouble maintaining his composure as he's driving his conspicuous self in his conspicuous car at a conspicuously high rate of speed, right? Note to criminology students of the future, it's not that easy keeping your shit together after murdering a bunch of innocent people, no matter how hard you try. Unless we're talking about a serial killer who has been at this for years, they tend to seem to be able to put up a pretty good veneer of normalcy over time. So the suspect vehicle was next seen traveling south on Walenta Drive. That means after leaving the street that the victims lived on, the suspect hung a left and the street that he found himself on curved into a southbound direction and turned into Walenta. From there, Corporal Payne, based on his knowledge of the area and of the suspect, surmised that the direction of travel and the road that was taken out of Moscow and into bordering Washington state was towards the city of Pullman, where he resided. Pullman, Washington is located approximately 10 miles or 16 kilometers away from Moscow, Idaho. Corporal Payne noted that both Pullman and Moscow are small college towns, and it is common for people to travel between the two. Moscow is home, of course, to the University of Idaho, where the victims were students, and Pullman is home to Washington State University where we will come to learn that the suspect was a student and was working as a teaching assistant there as well. Now that investigators have pinpointed this white sedan as having a high probability of being involved in the murders of these four young people, it was imperative that they identify the make and model of this vehicle. Those of us who have been fans of forensic files and the like over the years have seen the way these kinds of identifications are made. 
Corporal Payne states how all of this was done in his affidavit with the FBI forensic examiners. They have experts in analyzing video footage, even grainy footage, you know, the way surveillance videos used to be. And they look at characteristics of the video, things like the shape of the headlights or the taillights or the way the front grille is designed, things of that sort. So the FBI analysts were able to determine that the white sedan was a Hyundai Elantra, model years being between 2011 and 2016, as it is typical for car companies to use a model style for a number of years like that. So they had a range to work with, which narrowed this down a lot. And it's just going to take some good old-fashioned gumshoe detective work to find out who it is living in the area that is somewhat tall and slender, a white man with bushy eyebrows that drives a 2011 to 2016 white Hyundai Elantra outfitted with only a single rear license plate. You certainly don't need a criminology PhD to chase down those leads. You just have to have the resources. The next place investigators retrieved footage from was the Washington State University campus over there in the city of Pullman. When the video footage of the relevant time frames were reviewed, a white sedan consistent with being a Hyundai Elantra was seen traveling on Southeast Nevada Way and Northeast Stadium Way at 2.44 a.m. the morning of the murders, Sunday, November 13th. Now, those are not directions of travel attached to those streets. Those are part of the names that those streets have and where they intersected. So this intersection is on the southern side of the campus, and when I put it into maps, it's 9.3 miles or 15 kilometers away from the victim's house, or about a 16-minute drive. So just an hour and 15 minutes prior to that time when the same white Hyundai Elantra was captured on video on the street where the victims lived, the same car was out and about in the city and near the campus that the owner of that car lived, worked, and attended school. Seven minutes later, the suspect vehicle was observed still traveling on Southeast Nevada Street towards State Route 270. That's a highway or a freeway that connects Pullman, Washington, to Moscow, Idaho. Then, two hours and 41 minutes after the Hyundai was captured at that intersection on the Washington State campus, at 5.25 a.m., that suspect vehicle was seen on five different cameras in the city of Pullman and cameras on the campus once again. The affidavit goes through and tells you all the various addresses and intersections that each of the cameras captured video of that suspect vehicle, but I'm not going to go through all that. Just know that forensic examiners were putting together the suspect vehicle's path of travel as it was seen on these various cameras as the suspect headed back to his apartment in Pullman. He pretty much led investigators to his front doorstep himself by driving his own white Elantra back and forth and all around in circles going to the victim's house. I mean, he didn't quite do that, but he might as well have. Now, none of us knew anything about this white Hyundai Elantra when law enforcement became aware of it, and we know exactly why we didn't know anything about it. 
This was information that was kept very, very closely guarded in an effort to not tip off the suspect that investigators were on to him. In the days and weeks following the murders, the public was very desperate for information about this case because it had become high profile in the media and the community in and around the University of Idaho was very on edge about a killer as brutal as this being on the loose and understandably so. But the police knew better than to ask for the public's help to look for a car in a case like this. They kept everything very close to the vest. And for the next month and a half, through all the rest of November, Thanksgiving, to the end of the fall semester, and through the December holidays, we heard very little, if anything at all, officially from law enforcement. All that was going around was a whole bunch of rumors and speculations and accusations that were being made that the killer could possibly be some guy that was at the grub truck or that private party who gave the girls a ride home that night. We fortunately, in our group with my listeners, did not have very much discussion about this case until after the arrest was made, which was for the best, I think. I do like touching on these high-profile cases, like a lot of the podcast hosts do, but I don't really like getting into it until I have some answers and some information to work with. For example, you know that we covered the other high-profile case out of Idaho in recent times, the murders of Tylee Ryan and J.J. Vallow in Rexburg. We didn't discuss that case until the bodies of the kids were recovered. And then I talked about it again more than a year later as the case had a definitive start date when it came to the trial. We just recently covered the murders of Liberty German and Abigail Williams, commonly referred to as the Delphi murders, just a couple of months ago. Not even when the arrest was made, when the suspect was taken into custody, but after the probable cause affidavit was released. That was a case that had been going on for more than five and a half years by then, but we didn't cover it because there really wasn't much to say. There was no arrest that had been made until October of 2022, and even then, it took more time for the affidavit to become unsealed by the judge. That's when I was like, okay, we can finally talk about this story because we have some good information to work with. I've got to put together at least an hour-long episode, and that's not that easy when something isn't solved yet. So when these murders of these four young people happened back in November, we all woke up to the news trickling in that Sunday afternoon. And some of you remember, some of you may not, but I vividly remember that this was not the only multiple murder event to happen on a college campus that very same weekend. That same day that we were learning of the University of Idaho murders, clear across the country at the University of Virginia, located in Charlottesville, they had a mass killing event of their own. But an arrest was made the same day, or actually less than 12 hours later the next day, so the case quickly quieted down and the media focus remained and intensified 
on Moscow, Idaho, as this case seemed to linger on for longer than most of us were comfortable with. On Sunday, November 13, 2022, 22-year-old Christopher Darnell Jones Jr. was on a chartered bus that was headed back to the University of Virginia. He was on a class trip to see a play about Emmett Till in Washington, D.C. However, Christopher Jones was not a member of the class that was going to see the play that day, which was a class on African-American playwrights. He was invited because he was in a social justice class that was being taught by the same teacher that taught the playwrights class. But when he went, he sat in the back of the bus and hardly spoke to any of the other students along the way. Shots rang out at 10.15 p.m. at the parking garage near the university's drama department. Everyone who was involved in the shooting were passengers on the bus. Survivors of the shooting said that Jones yelled, You guys are always messing with me, before he opened fire. The shooting began as they were arriving at the parking garage. A witness who dropped to the floor of the bus as soon as she realized that the popping sounds were gunfire said that during a pause in the shooting, she saw Jones walk down the aisle of the bus before exiting, and then he began firing again. Other witnesses reported that it appeared that the shooter was specifically targeting certain individuals because one of the victims who was killed was actually asleep on the bus at the time that he was shot. So a shelter-in-place order was issued that evening, and it lasted approximately 12 hours, during which there was an active manhunt for Jones. He was eventually spotted by a local police officer who was aware of the be on the lookout for his vehicle. He was arrested just before 11.30 a.m. Monday morning, November 14th. Three people were killed, all of them members of the University of Virginia football team. 20-year-old Devin Chandler, a junior from Huntsville, North Carolina. 22-year-old Deshaun Perry, also a junior from Miami, Florida. And 20-year-old Lavelle Davis Jr., also a junior from Dorchester, South Carolina. Two other students were wounded and they survived. Jones played football when he was in high school and was all-conference as a freshman and second team during his sophomore and junior years. During his senior year, he went to a different high school, and he was an honorable mention all-conference that year. Outside of football, Jones was student of the year twice. He was a member of the National Honor Society and the National Technical Honor Society. He was president of the Key Club and president of the Jobs for Virginia Graduates program. At the University of Virginia, Jones was a former walk-on football player. I did not know what a walk-on player was, so Google enlightened me. According to DIYCollegeRankings.com, a recruited walk-on has been recruited by the coach with the understanding that there is the possibility of making the team. The player has in no way been offered a spot on the team. A plain walk-on player is someone who has decided to try out for the team without the coach's support. Okay, so Jones was kind of just there, trying to play football at the University of Virginia, but not officially a member of the team. 
During his freshman year of 2018, he was a member of the football team, but he did not play in any games. Jones was investigated in regards to some alleged on-campus hazing in the past. His relative said that he was hazed himself when he was at the university, and someone who purportedly knew Jones said that he had been bullied there too, and it was really bad. That investigation into the bullying ended because witnesses refused to cooperate. In September of 2022, Jones was investigated over concerns that he owned a gun after someone reported to the school that he had made a comment about having one, though that person never actually saw it. Investigators reached out to Jones and to his roommate, who stated that they never saw the weapon. So that was just two months or so before the shooting. Jones has been charged with three counts of second-degree murder, three counts of using a handgun in the commission of a felony, and two counts of malicious wounding. He's being held without bail pending trial. And whatever the motive was behind the shootings, I think that perhaps some of that may be able to be inferred in what Jones said just before he opened fire, that everyone was messing with him. But anything else? The reasons behind this remains to be seen. And as for the case that we're talking about today, the motive, we don't know what it is either. There's been a lot of speculation about it, but there's been nothing confirmed yet in terms of what the official motive is thought to be. So anyway, all of that was to say that I know it may seem that I'm kind of late to the game with these high-profile cases, but that's because of the way this podcast is. I need as much information as I can possibly get my hands on, otherwise I'm not going to be able to put together an hour to an hour and a half of material for you to listen to. This is, and always has been, something that you can listen to while you're winding down, or relaxing, or even trying to fall asleep to which is why I try making each episode more than an hour long without any advertisements. And that's why I wait for time to pass before I get to these types of breaking news stories. And even then, I'm not always quick to jump into it because every day there seems to be more and more information coming out. And then I would feel like I did the episode too soon and there's a lot being left out. So in that sense, I'm glad we waited, not only until after the arrest, but also after the release of the probable cause affidavit, which doesn't always answer all the questions we have, but it damn sure answers plenty, to me anyway. Let's get back to the case. So we didn't know about the white Hyundai Elantra until an arrest was made, right? I think that was when it started making the news anyway. We learned much more about it when the affidavit was released the first week of January. I think a lot of people were pretty surprised just to see how much investigators had been keeping away from public conception since the murders took place back on the 13th of November. And I think the Moscow police were getting a lot of criticism for there seeming to be very little in the way of evidence or leads to a suspect. It was very uncomfortable for those 48 days between the time those four students were killed to the time a suspect was in custody. But you know what? 
we may have been uncomfortable with that, but the one person who wasn't uncomfortable was the suspect himself. In fact, every day that passed without a single word in the media about any solid leads or suspects was another day that this suspect was probably becoming more and more comfortable with what he had done. Now, I have to admit that I wasn't paying too much attention to everything that was being said in the media or on social media, but apparently there were a lot of people running rampant with conjecture and speculation and rumors, and all that time, not one thing was ever mentioned about the suspect, his car, or the city he lived in, or the university he attended, or where he worked at, absolutely nothing. All of it surprised us in this last week. Because you know that this guy probably was following the news very closely, and there was just nothing. So Mr. Master's Degree in Criminology and a PhD in the works probably thought that he would never come under suspicion because of his standing at the school or the position he was in as an assistant teacher. He probably thought that he was smarter than everybody else or that he could outsmart every investigative agency on the case. But I'll tell you, there's something to be said for getting out there and studying these real-world criminal cases firsthand, watching these cases unfold in real time, indulging in documentaries, listening to podcasts, even creating a podcast. When you dive in to the hundreds and hundreds of cases across so many decades, and I'm talking about us, we're these armchair detectives, right? You learn a lot about crime and criminals. And I would bet that any podcast host out there could run circles around Mr. PhD criminologist because any podcast host out there would know better than to drive your own vehicle in and around the neighborhood of the victims, knowing that there are surveillance cameras, ring doorbells, and cell phones literally everywhere nowadays. That's the point of these devices. They're meant to be deterrents. If you think about doing a serious crime, Unless you're invisible, chances are extremely high that you're going to get caught. And it's not just the cameras at the scene of the crime that you need to worry about. It's all the cameras along the way as these criminals head to the crime scene and then head back home. I've seen investigators look for city buses with cameras installed on them that may have been near the area where a crime took place. Police will trace these bus routes to see if anything or anyone was captured on those cameras, and suspects have been identified that way. It may not be evidence that can be the linchpin of a case, but rather it's just another piece to the puzzle as the case is being built. All of those cameras that picked up the suspect's white Hyundai Elantra, all of those cameras put together told a story of this killer's murder journey that night. We know now that while the world was in the dark as to what was going on with the investigation into these four murders, we've come to find out that the investigators were on it. On November 25, 2022, 12 days after the murders, the Moscow Police Department asked surrounding law enforcement agencies to be on the lookout for any white Hyundai Elantras in the area. They did not ask the public to be on the lookout. And that's because... 
Can we all say it together? They did not want to tip off the white Hyundai Elantra owning killer that they were on to him. He could have fled. He could have somehow gotten rid of his car. He could have tried to harm more people or himself. So no, none of us knew. But every member of law enforcement in the surrounding areas, they did know. It was only four days later, on March 29, 2022, 17 days after the murders, at around 12.30 in the morning, a Washington State University police officer named Daniel Tiango queried white Hyundai Elantras registered at the university per the Be On The Lookout alert. As a result of his query, he located a 2015 white Elantra with a Pennsylvania license plate. And while we have no interest in giving this suspect any kind of notoriety, I will tell you his name this one time, this one and only time, because this was the moment he was identified, not as the suspect just yet, just as an owner or registered owner of a white Hyundai Elantra. After that, we'll just keep calling him what we've been calling him. The suspect, the defendant, Mr. PhD, the stupidest PhD in America, or just simply dumbass. The vehicle was found to be registered to a 28-year-old Washington State University PhD student named Brian Koberger, and the affidavit listed his address as well, and Corporal Payne pointed out in the affidavit that his apartment was located only three-fourths of a mile or 1.2 kilometers away from the location of the last camera that picked up footage of the white Elantra at approximately 5.27 a.m. the morning of the murders. So the suspect vehicle was a very short distance from the suspect's apartment as the suspect vehicle was returning home from being over by the crime scene just a couple hours earlier the morning of the murders. On that same day, November 29th, close to a half hour after Officer Tiengo made his initial query on the white Elantras, another Washington State University officer named Curtis Whitman was also looking for white Elantras, and he located one that was parked in the suspect's apartment building's parking lot. That apartment complex houses Washington State University students. Officer Whitman ran the vehicle's information, and it came back to belonging to the same person, but this time it had Washington State license plates. So, this meant that at some point recently, the suspect registered his car in the state of Washington. Whenever it was that the suspect registered for school at Washington State, and he got the parking permit for his vehicle or whatever it was that he needed to do that got his car into the school system. His vehicle at that time was registered in the state of Pennsylvania, which we know now is where the suspect is originally from and where his family currently resides. Corporal Payne reviewed the suspect's driver's license and came to find out that he was a white male with a height of 6 feet or 1.82 meters tall, a weight of 185 pounds or 84 kilograms, and it was Corporal Payne's observation 
that the suspect's driver's license picture showed that he did have bushy eyebrows. And I think that we all tend to agree that the suspect does have relatively bushy eyebrows. So his physical description describes what surviving roommate Dylan Mortensen saw inside the home that she shared with three of the victims the morning of the killings. She got a pretty good look at him, all things considered. Now they've got the suspect vehicle, and they got the fact that the owner of said suspect vehicle matches the description Dylan gave of the man she saw walking past her. It was time for investigators to immediately begin looking into this guy. They found that on August 21st, 2022, which was a Sunday, a little less than three months before the murders, the suspect was detained as a part of a traffic stop that occurred in Moscow, Idaho. He was the only person in the car, which was the suspect vehicle, a white Hyundai with Pennsylvania plates at the time. Those license plate tags were due to expire on November 30th, 2022. So he was going to have to either renew his Pennsylvania tags or register his vehicle there in the state of Washington, where he was going to school and living at the time, and he was going to have to do that by the end of November. During this traffic stop in Moscow, the suspect was asked by the officer who pulled him over for his cell phone number, which he provided. Part of the phone number is redacted throughout the affidavit with the exception of the four last digits and is referred to by Corporal Payne as the 8458 phone. I'm not going to do that. We'll just call it his cell phone or the suspect's phone or even better, dumbass's phone. And that's because Mr. P.H. Duh made so many stupid pedestrian mistakes that should have been way beyond the scope of what a person holding a master's degree in criminology should have ever made. I mean, this guy is seriously on the fast track to becoming a case study in what not to do when committing first-degree murder for all future criminology students to come. It's also important to note that this traffic stop took place in Moscow, Idaho, the city in which the victims resided. As of this recording of this episode, we don't have any information about the suspect's connection to Moscow or to any of the victims. There's been a great deal of speculation about the suspect possibly stalking one of the victims, so it is noteworthy that he racked up one of his many traffic stops to come here in Moscow. But I am curious, what was he doing there? What business did he have being there? It's said that going back and forth between Washington State and the University of Idaho is very common, that people do it all the time. Maybe he has an excuse for being there. I'd like to hear it. Another takeaway from all of this is not only is this suspect bad at murdering, he's also bad at driving. He was pulled over again on Friday, October 14th, 2022, this time by a Washington State University police officer. The suspect was again the only person in the car and he was driving the same white Hyundai Elantra, still with Pennsylvania plates. So then there is a thing that happened that seemed to many to be a little bit suspicious, perhaps even a lot bit suspicious. On November 18th, 2022, that would be a Friday, and it would be the same week as the murders, some five days later, 
The suspect registered his white Elantra in the state of Washington and later received new license plates. Prior to that date, the car was registered in Pennsylvania as per the state laws, and he was only required to have a single plate affixed to the rear of the car. I mentioned earlier that the states of Washington and Idaho both require vehicles registered in those states to have two license plates on their vehicles. Now, I have a car that has one rear plate. And because of, I guess, where my car was going to be going, it doesn't have a place on the front bumper to mount a second license plate. So if and when I move back to California and I register my car in that state, I'm going to have to have two plates and I'm going to have to figure out a way to have that license plate affixed to the front bumper. Either that or stick it in the windshield, which I really don't think I want to do that. But I actually hadn't really thought about it until I started talking about this in this podcast. So I don't know what the suspect did, if he had a place on his vehicle to mount the second license plate. I don't know if it was mounted or not, but all I know is that he now has his car registered in a state that requires the two license plates. The reason this might seem suspicious is because of the timing of the registration of the vehicle and the changing of the license plates happening the same week that the murders took place. The suspect could have had some time to reflect on what he had done. The murders were making headlines across the country by then, and we can only assume that he was keeping tabs on what was going on in the media and what was being said in the news and on the internet. And perhaps the suspect got to thinking, maybe I should swap out my plates, just in case. However, I'm not 100% convinced that this is anything to be suspicious of because, first off, his Pennsylvania tags were set to expire on the 30th of November, so he was going to have to either renew them by mail or have his family take care of it and get the tags sent to him, or he was going to have to just register his car in Washington, as he seemed to have plans on being there for at least the duration of his PhD program. I think that it would have made a difference if this was perhaps a planned trip to the DMV or if he had an appointment. And if he had an appointment, how far in advance was that appointment? I would kind of like to know how much planning went into the swapping of the plates and if he did go to the DMV, if he was just a walk-in. The next thing I want to talk about is the fact that the suspect had plans to drive from Washington State to Pennsylvania with his dad as soon as he was finished with the fall semester. This was allegedly a planned trip that they were to take together. The dad flew there from the family home in Pennsylvania in order to make the drive with his son. I posted about this like a week or so ago in our Facebook group following the suspect's arrest, but before the affidavit was released. And I said that I thought it was kind of weird that the dad would fly out there to drive with his son but a lot of you disagreed with me. My thinking was that if the suspect was going there to visit his family for the holidays, then he could have flown on his own. His parents could have sent him a plane ticket. I mean, there were easier ways to go about this than for the suspect to drive his car in the wintertime across the United States. It's a trip that's at least 2,500 miles or more than 4,000 kilometers. But many of you said on my social media post 
oh, that's not strange at all. This could have been a father-son bonding road trip. The parents probably didn't want their kid driving across the United States by themselves, all of which are valid points. But one of you said that we think it's weird because we know what he's been accused of now. And yeah, that was kind of my point. But here's the thing. I don't get the impression that the suspect's family has tons of money. At the end of an article that I read about this trip that the dad made with his son, it said that the suspect's public defender in Pennsylvania had stated something to the fact that the suspect was getting ready to be extradited back to Idaho to defend himself against the charges. I mean, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but spoiler alert, the suspect was taken into custody in Pennsylvania, but many of you probably already know that. But anyway, the public defender was saying that the suspect was looking forward to being exonerated and that as soon as he arrives back in Idaho, that he will be assigned a public defender because his family is unable to afford to hire him a private attorney. So that being said, since we're talking money, I just think it would have been more economically sound for the family to have sent the suspect a round trip plane ticket as opposed to having the dad fly from Pennsylvania drive across the country with his son when the semester was over and then drive back again when the semester was beginning and then fly back again to Pennsylvania. And that's if all of you who commented that the parents didn't want the suspect driving around the United States by himself is the reason why they're doing this back and forth from Pennsylvania. Now, before everybody jumps all over me, I realize hiring an attorney to defend your son against four counts of capital murder in what is most likely going to be a very long, protracted death penalty case is a heck of a lot more costly than some transcontinental back and forth and back and forth again. But still, the family has already put it out there that they can't afford legal representation. And from the way it sounded to me, that that was going to be the end of that conversation, right? We can assume that unless they're going to come into a windfall of money, then their son is going to have to rely on the public defender. I also think it's possible that deep down, the family might think spending any kind of money on defending their son is just throwing good money after bad since the case against him is looking pretty damning. I mean, why mortgage your house to the hilt and try to defend the indefensible? Why postpone their retirements or unretire even to try and save their son from the seemingly inevitable? But anyway, I'll accept the explanation that this was a planned road trip for the father and son to spend some time together. We are about to find out that they did drive through the city of Loma, Colorado, which would have them swinging way south as they were headed east towards Pennsylvania. And when I put that into maps, it added another 300 miles or 480 kilometers onto their trip, but it did take them much further south where the weather may have been milder at this time of year. The probable cause affidavit then gets into the suspect's Elantra making its way across the United States sometime beginning around Tuesday, December 13th, 2022 until Friday, December 16th. And as I just mentioned, the license plate of the car was picked up on a reader in Loma, Colorado on December 13th. Two days later, on December 15th, 
The Elantra was stopped by law enforcement in the state of Indiana twice for following too closely both times. You all have probably heard about these traffic stops. Both times the suspect was driving and his dad was in the passenger seat. Both times were captured on police body cam. And both times the suspect was let off with a verbal warning. Which only attests to the fact that the suspect is terrible at driving. And for me, it kind of also attests to the notion that this guy is pretty comfortable at this point considering what he's being accused of doing. He's confident that he's not on any law enforcement radar. And this is one month to the day since the murders had happened. He doesn't have an issue, it seems, drawing attention to himself with terrible driving. But we know by this time that the suspect is being surveilled by police. So they could have been pulling him over just to mess with him, maybe? I mean, I probably would. Who gets pulled over twice in a row for tailgating and then not given a ticket? Those Indiana police probably didn't want to waste their time on the paperwork involved in giving a ticket to a guy who was on the verge of getting arrested for quadruple murder. The affidavit then got into the suspect's cell phone, its data, and the police doing a data dump and gathering up location information. You know, because they want to find out if his phone was using towers that were in close proximity to the victim's house at the time that the murders took place, which would have been on November 13th, 2022, between 3 and 5 a.m. Once the suspect was identified as being associated with the white Elantra and the cell phone number that he had given during that one traffic stop in Moscow, a warrant for his phone records for that time frame surrounding the murders was applied for and given. And it was found that the suspect's phone did not utilize any towers close to the victim's home between 3 and 5 a.m. the morning of the murders. Now, Corporal Payne wrote in his affidavit, not in these words, but you know how I paraphrase. He wrote that based on his experience that, yeah, these killers have left their phones in other locations before going to commit a crime or they turn their phones off prior to going to the location where they intended to commit a crime. They do this to try and thwart law enforcement investigation. They think they're going to get over on the cops. These guys think they're such smarty pants and that they should be in some PhD criminology program at some prestigious university or something like that because they're that brilliant, right? Again, note to future PhDs studying criminology. That's what dumbasses do. They drive their bright white cars to do crimes. They make U-turns and three-point turns in front of everybody's ring doorbells while looking for a good parking spot. They turn their phones off while they're doing crimes. Then they turn their phones back on after they're done with crimes. And you know what else they do? They drop evidence at the crime scene with their DNA all over it. Yeah, I'll get to that. So Corporal Payne, he puts it more eloquently than I do when he states in his affidavit that this is done by subjects in an effort to avoid alerting law enforcement that a cellular device associated with them was in a particular area when a crime is committed. Corporal Payne said that on several occasions in his experiences, subjects have surveilled an area 
where they intend to commit a crime prior to the date of the crime. Sometimes they do it a couple of weeks in advance or a couple of months, and it is often the case that these subjects do not turn their phones off during those times because they don't intend to commit the crime on that particular day. So are you picking up what Corporal Payne is putting down? They looked at the suspect's historical phone records to see if his phone was hitting towers in close proximity to the scene of the crime in the weeks and months prior to the murders, and they hit pay dirt again because the suspect is a dum-dum. So Corporal Payne applied for a warrant for a history of the suspect's phone records that covered 24 hours before the murders and 24 hours after the murders. That would be from November 12th through November 14th. He applied for that warrant on the 23rd of December, which was a Friday, and he got that information from the suspect's cell phone provider, which was AT&T, that very same day. So you see, these investigators were probably toiling over this case over Christmas all this time, and there were a lot of talking heads out there that were thinking that the police were dragging their feet. Come to find out, they were actively building a really, really good case against the suspect. They just couldn't let any of us know about it because they really didn't want the suspect to know about it. Carpal Payne found from the suspect's phone records that his phone was using a tower at 2.42 a.m. the morning of the murders, Sunday, November 13, 2022, at a tower that provided service to his own apartment. Five minutes later, at 2.47 a.m., the suspect's phone was using a tower that provided coverage to an area southeast of his apartment, consistent with the suspect having left his apartment and traveling south through the city of Pullman. And this lined up with what was determined to be the path of travel of the white Elantra, which was captured on several video surveillance cameras. At 2.47 a.m., the suspect's phone went off the network. This is consistent with the loss of cell phone service, the phone being put into airplane mode, or the phone being turned off completely. The suspect's phone reappeared on the cellular network two hours and one minute later at 4.48 a.m. So when the dumbass turned his phone back on, it began utilizing towers that provided coverage to Idaho State 95, just south of Moscow, Idaho. Master degree in criminology, and he didn't even have the damn sense to wait until he got back into the state of Washington to turn his phone back on. And you know what this is a testament to? This reliance or dependence on their phones or just the habit of always having it. I mean, come on, dude. You just killed four people. Do you really need to check your Instagram and TikToks right now? I'm used to having my phone also. We all are. And all this goes to show is that a criminology student may not have known to leave their phone at home, leave it on, leave apps open, have a podcast or music or Hulu playing. Make it so your phone won't go to sleep after five minutes of inactivity. Seriously, I'm not trying to give advice on how to get away with murder, but turning off your phone right before you kill somebody and then turning it back on right after is such an amateur move. But we're so attached to our phones. Just by force of habit, we stick it in our pockets or even our handbags every time we leave the house, no matter where we are going and no matter for how long. 
And apparently, no matter if you're planning on pulling off a quadruple murder, so it's like this guy was like, duh, I'll just turn my phone off before I get there and the cops will never know. Yeah, you're dumb. So, dumb dumb here, turns his phone back on while it's still pinging in Idaho at 4.48 a.m., meaning he didn't even wait a half hour after leaving the victim's house to turn his phone back on. For the next 40 minutes, his phone was utilizing towers in a way that was consistent with his phone traveling south on Highway 95 to Genesee, Idaho. This is a good 20 minutes south of the crime scene. Then the phone traveled back up north towards Pullman, the city where he resided. So when I looked at maps, there is Highway 95 that goes south for about 24 miles or 38 kilometers to a point where it meets the Washington state border and U.S. Route 195 that's within the state of Washington, which goes back up north about the same distance as 95 back up to Pullman. So the suspect did not take that direct route that goes east and west between the victim's house and his apartment when he headed home. And that would explain the gap in time where his vehicle may have been, where it was not captured on any surveillance videos. He made this 50 mile or 76 kilometer loop to the south and all the way back north to his place of residence based on where his phone was using towers. When I looked at this route that the suspect took based on the cell phone data, there is very little along these highways as he traveled south, then crossed over back into Washington and then back up north again. There looks to be a few buildings here and there. They look like they could be farms because there is nothing else around but land. I got down to the street view, but these are private properties and you can only look at them from the highway but I saw a barn and what looked like farming equipment nearby. So what do I make of this detour that the suspect may have taken? Because I don't know if he did this or not. I'm only going on what I got from the cell phone data in the affidavit. So what I think is that the killer, the suspect, had some things that he needed to do. He needed to apply some of that criminology wisdom of his. Even though his cell phone is showing us where he was at, I think he needed to get rid of evidence. The murder weapon has not been found. He may have needed to get rid of bloody clothing. He may have even needed some place off the beaten path in order to try and clean himself up before reappearing in Pullman. And you know, perhaps... The suspect needed his phone on in order to use his flashlight. It's probably a long shot at ever recovering that murder weapon, that K-bar knife. But who knows? Maybe police are canvassing those areas where his cell phone was pinging. Maybe they've got the word out to a few locals and farmers. I haven't lost all hope that the murder weapon is gone forever. Because remember, we're dealing with a dumbass. The suspect's cell phone was back utilizing cell towers consistent with the suspect being back at his own place of residence at 5.30 a.m. the morning of the murders. And it all matches up with the video evidence collected of the white Elantra returning to the area also and with the path of travel it was taking towards his apartment. 
So according to Corporal Payne's affidavit, later on the morning of the murders, around 9 a.m., the suspect's vehicle utilized cell phone towers that was consistent with him leaving his apartment and traveling again in the direction of Moscow. His phone then used cell towers that provided service to the victim's home starting from 9.12 to 9.21 a.m. Then his phone was back using towers that would have serviced his apartments again 11 minutes later at 9.32 a.m. So the implication here is that the suspect drove to the crime scene and back home some five hours after the murders. At that time, 911 had not yet been called. So what this leads me to speculate is that the suspect was sitting in his apartment anxiously waiting for the news of the murders to break. You can imagine that, right? The hours are ticking by and nothing is happening. Daybreak came, 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m., nothing. 9 a.m. arrives and the suspect is like, what the hell is going on? The only way to figure this out was for him to drive back to Moscow and to see what was going on at the victim's house. We don't know for sure, but this has got to be driving him crazy, right? Waiting to hear about what he's done hit the news. And if this guy is a typical narcissistic killer like many of them are, then he wants to see what he's done get some publicity. So the suspect headed there at 9 a.m. He got there around 9.15. He saw that there was no police activity at the house, and then he hightails it back to his apartment to continue to wait. Law enforcement had not yet been alerted to the murders. We know that the surviving roommate did not call 911 when she saw the man clad in black leaving the residence through that back sliding glass door. 911 wasn't called until 11.58 a.m., and it has not been made public who it was that made that call. Towards the end of this episode, I'll talk a little bit more about that delay in calling for help. Getting back to the phone records, Corporal Payne applied for and was granted a search warrant for the suspect's phone from June 23rd to December 23, 2022. The suspect only had that phone and that phone number since June. Corporal Payne wanted to try and see if there had been a pattern of stalking on the part of the suspect prior to the murders, if the suspect had conducted any kind of surveillance on the victim's home, if he was in contact with any of the victims or any of their friends or associates before the crime. Corporal Payne was also looking for any locations that may be of evidentiary value related to the murders. He wanted to look for the location of the white Elantra, where it had been, or the location of the suspect himself and where he had been. Corporal Payne came to find that an analysis of the phone's historical data revealed that prior to the killings, the suspect utilized cell phone towers that serviced the area around the victim's home a total of 12 times. All 12 of those occasions, with the exception of one, occurred late in the evening or early morning hours on their respective days. One of those occasions was on August 21st, 2022, when he was pulled over 
and he provided his phone number to the officer. We talked about that a little bit earlier. So what this means is the suspect had a habit of checking out the victim's home in the middle of the night, at least close to a dozen times prior to the killings. The affidavit then goes over the cell phone information that was revealed later on in the day, the same day that the murders took place. And I thought it was kind of interesting and a little bit confusing to see what this guy had the nerve to be out and about doing after committing a quadruple murder, right? Well, he went from where he lived in Pullman to Lewiston, Idaho, sometime after 12 p.m. That would be eight hours after the murders and three hours after he got back from checking on the crime scene because news of the murders hadn't hit yet. He's back in Idaho, this time in the city of Lewiston to be exact. And that's about a 35 minute drive south of Moscow and further along that same Route 95 that I suspected he took before heading back up north to his apartment right after the murders, that detour by all those farms and things. He didn't seem to be making any stops in Lewiston at this 12 to 12.30 trip. His phone began using cell phone towers that provided coverage for a place called Kate's Cup of Joe, which is located in the city of Clarkston, Washington. So now he's back in his home state sometime after 1235, later on the same day of the murders. Surveillance footage from across the street showed a white Elantra at Kate's Cup of Joe. His phone was then picked up close to the same time that provided coverage for an Albertson's grocery store, also located in Clarkston. Surveillance footage from the store showed the suspect getting out of his white Elantra at 12.49 p.m. Cameras inside showed him walking around and making purchases and then leaving the store at 1.04 p.m. The affidavit said that these purchases are unknown, but I think that they should be able to see what the suspect grabbed. It's not really that hard to look at surveillance video and pinpoint where this guy was picking up items, but they just didn't include that information if they know it in the affidavit. Now, the following is my own speculation again, but in order to get to Lewiston, Idaho, and then to Clarkson, Washington, at the time that he was there, he would have had to have left his apartment still prior to the time that 911 was called. And at least a couple of hours before the news began to break. And to me, it kind of sounds like the suspect was growing more and more anxious as he waited at home for the murders to be reported in the news. He may have needed to just get out of his apartment again, like he did three hours earlier at 9 a.m. when he drove to Moscow and back to check once again on the crime scene to see if there was any law enforcement activity yet at the house. He could have very well been at or near the victim's house in, or in very close proximity to it when that 911 call was finally made. Again, my speculation, he could have possibly seen or heard emergency vehicles at or headed to the scene. And I mean, think about it. What do you think this guy's anxiety was like? I tend to think it was probably pretty high. So maybe instead of going home and waiting and waiting, 
He began driving south again within the state of Idaho. Based on the cell phone tower information, it's likely that he would have been going along the same route that he would have taken when he initially fled the scene of the murders that same morning. Maybe he was going by the area where he dumped the murder weapon and his bloody clothing to see if there was any law enforcement activity in that area. And he likely didn't see anything if he was looking for that, so his nerves were maybe starting to settle down a little bit. But maybe waiting at home for everything to unfold was too much for him. So he drove around into the state of Idaho. Maybe he thought if he went into the store, he might hear conversations about the murders. Maybe he wanted to distance himself from his own apartment and the surrounding areas in case the law came a knockin. I don't know what was going on in this guy's mind. This is all just conjecture on my part. But I can, to an extent, understand the anxiousness and the anticipation of it all. After the suspect's phone left the Albertsons, it began utilizing cell phone towers that provided coverage to Johnson, Idaho, from 5.32 p.m. to 5.36 p.m. that same afternoon of the murders, November 13th. Then the suspect's phone goes off the network for the next three hours until 8.30 p.m. The affidavit states that this is consistent with the suspect's phone having been in that same area in the hours immediately following the suspected time that the murders took place. Now, this whole part confuses me because Johnson, Idaho, is an hour and a half further east of the Washington state border. So what they're saying is that he went to an area serviced by the cell tower that covers Johnson. So he may not have necessarily gone all the way to that city. There is a whole bunch of ruralness in between. That cell coverage could certainly cover a large area since it's so sparsely populated. But they seem to believe that the suspect went out this direction right after the murders and then returned later on that same evening for like three hours when he shut off his phone again. He could have been doing some of the things that I already speculated, dumping evidence, getting rid of stuff, checking to see if the evidence that he had dumped had been disturbed. My imagination is all over the place with this. He may have gone to the Albertsons to get a flashlight since he was intending to turn off his phone while he was out there, you know, because it was going to be dark. He went out there for something. What it was, I don't know. Why his phone was off for three hours, I wish I knew. We're all just going to have to use our imaginations on that one. And finally, the last thing listed in the affidavit is the DNA evidence associated with this case. If you recall, I mentioned earlier that upon the initial examination of the crime scene, investigators recovered the tan leather sheath that belonged to a K-bar branded heavy fixed bladed knife with the Marine Corps insignia stamped on it. And I told you that forensic examiners developed a DNA profile that came from the snap button of that sheath. Well, since they had their suspect, they needed to find a way to obtain a sample of his DNA in order to compare it to the sample from the sheath. The way they went about that was having law enforcement agents in the state of Pennsylvania surveil the residence of the suspect's family located in the unincorporated community of Albrightsville 
population 138. They waited for the suspect's family to bring the trash out to the curb. They snatched up that garbage and sent it or whatever they thought may contain DNA on it over to the lab in Idaho. And I mean, this was the rushiest rush job ever when it came to DNA collection, to DNA testing, to obtaining a DNA profile that I've ever heard of. The trash was in Pennsylvania on the 27th of December. By the very next day, the 28th, the DNA profile had been developed all the way over in the state of Idaho, and it came back to being a 99.99992 infinity percent of the male population of the world that would be excluded as being the biological father of the person who left the DNA on that knife sheath. In other words, the suspect is not only a dumbass, he's a dumbass that's well on his way to Idaho's death row if the state prosecutors had anything to say about it. That DNA from the trash came from the father of the person who left the DNA on that knife sheath. Forensic examiners once again use that good old genealogical DNA technology once again. And two days later, on Friday, December 30th, 2022, while the whole world thought that the Moscow Police Department had made no progress on this case, they, along with the help of numerous other law enforcement agents, after taking that probable cause affidavit that I just went over with you to obtain a warrant, Corporal Payne had signed that affidavit on December 29th, and they were issued the warrant for the suspect, charging him with four accounts of first-degree murder and burglary, and they arrested him at his parents' home in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. And we all, especially the family and loved ones of the victims of this, were finally able to breathe a collective sigh of relief, knowing that law enforcement were, in fact, doing their job, and they were doing it well. They kept us in the dark, and they had to just suck it up when it came to all the criticisms and all of the false rumors and conjecture that swirled around them. And any concerns about whether or not they had the right guy dissipated just a few days later when the affidavit was released. And we saw... Not everything that they had on this case, but enough to feel confident that the right person was finally behind bars. This is a crime that I'm going to remember for a long time to come. And I'm going to remember what happened through it all. Perhaps many of us had been lacking confidence in law enforcement when it comes to these small towns with high-profile cases. I point to the Delphi murders as case in point. We'd become so disheartened as one year after another after another went by without an arrest in that case. And then more than five years into the investigation, a suspect was finally arrested, but the investigators and law enforcement were being really super weird and secretive about the probable cause affidavit, and then when it was finally released, many found it to be shaky and baseless, and we are still very worried that when that suspect makes his way to court next month for his bail hearing, he's going to be released either on bail or on his own recognizance, or the charges might not even stick. But this case, the one we're talking about today in Idaho, I think it's restored some of our confidence. 
and hopefully it sends a message that killers just can't go around murdering people and getting away with it. No matter how hard you try or how many criminology degrees you have, it's not as easy as you think. Well, I don't think it's easy at all. So this last part of my episode, I shared my notes in my Facebook discussion group. I wrote this a couple nights ago when I was thinking about the criticisms and speculation there has been out there about why Dylan Mortensen didn't call 911 when she saw the male figure clad in black leaving the home or why she waited several hours before calling 911 if it was her that actually called. And officially, there has been no reason explained as to why there was this delay. And to be clear, all of this can only be speculated on because the question has been asked, why did the surviving roommate who witnessed this tall man dressed in black leave through the backsliding glass door not call 911 right away? And the only way that I can really speculate on this is if you put yourself, if I put myself into that person's shoes. And even then, I still have many more years of life that I've lived and many thousands of hours of true crime content that I've listened to and watched across those years. Hundreds of hours of content that I've created myself to draw from. But what I absolutely do not have is the experience of what that young lady went through in the moment when she saw that man or the two months since all of this had happened to reflect back on it. I'm also the mother of a daughter who is just a couple of years older than these kids. And I live alone now, but I've lived with family. I've lived with more roommates than I care to remember. And I've had roommates in an off-campus apartment situation. We all have our different experiences, and we can all say to an extent what we would have done. What we can't say for sure is why Dylan Mortensen did what she did. It's likely we haven't been told what she may have said to investigators in an effort to protect her. And honestly, it's really not necessary information when putting together the probable cause affidavit. I personally don't think that there's anything that Dylan did wrong. She's very young, and I'm pretty sure she has never, ever experienced anything nearly as traumatic as this. And you know, in general, she probably hasn't experienced a whole lot of anything. She lived in a house with several other young people. There was probably always something going on, always people up all hours of the night, coming and going, in and out upstairs, downstairs, all the way around. She was probably scared. And she went back into her room when she saw this man and locked the door. And she could have just sat there quietly in the dark, listening. She may have thought that since it was suddenly quiet, that maybe everything was okay. Bethany Funk was on the first floor, and she wasn't disturbed by anything that happened. Dylan could have thought that if anything was wrong, someone would come and get her and they would have to knock on her door and they would have to tell her who they were and say their name. There were at least five other people inside the house at the time. Dylan may have thought that if there was something wrong, that 
someone else would call the police if they needed to. Dylan could have been out drinking that night. Maybe she knew that others in the house were drinking too, possibly doing other things or using other substances. Maybe she was worried about getting somebody in trouble. Not all of these people were of drinking age. But what I absolutely can believe is that it is likely that the last thing Dylan would have ever thought was that everybody else on her floor and upstairs was dead. She saw one man leaving the house through the back door. She's probably not going to automatically think that that man massacred her four friends. Maybe she thought the man was across the hall trying to attack Zana. Zana and Dylan, they shared the second floor. But when the man saw Ethan there, he decided to flee. Maybe Ethan scared him off because he wasn't necessarily expected to be there. And we can't ever forget that Dylan could have been absolutely terrified for a very long time, much too terrified to do anything. And for all that time that she was in her room, she stayed there quietly and nobody else ever came to knock on her door or to alert her to anything. So she could have had the impression that everything was okay. And she could have even gone to sleep too. Whatever the case was, whatever was going on in her mind and in her heart, we just don't know. We don't know her. We don't know what her experiences have been. And to be honest, it doesn't really bother me all that much that she didn't call 911. I would have been scared to go and investigate on my own. I would have even been scared to look at my phone and for it to light up or make any sounds. She could have even turned her phone off to prevent that. I have a story to share with you that kind of had me relating a little bit to what was going on here. So last week on January 1st, I visited my daughter and I drove to Nevada from California. And while I was still several miles away, from the freeway interchange that I needed to get to to head towards where I live, I saw a woman standing in the middle of the freeway with both of her hands raised up into the air and waving. It looked like she was trying to get someone to stop or to flag somebody down. I saw what I assumed was her car safely pulled off to the side of the freeway, but this woman was literally in the middle of the freeway in one of the traffic lanes. She wasn't in the lane that I was driving in. I was one lane over, but I was going full speed with the rest of traffic. And at first I was, I was afraid that she was going to move into my lane. So after I sped past her, I was terrified to look into my back rear view mirror to see if the rest of the traffic behind me, what they were doing, if they were in the other lanes, swerving around to try and miss her, or if she possibly even got hit by a car. And then I thought, I should call 911, and I need to get this woman some help. But then I thought, there are so many vehicles right now, they're probably all calling 911, so I don't want to jam up the phone lines. I actually had all of these thoughts as I was driving, and in the end, I don't know what would have been the right thing for me to have done. I continued to think about 
all the other possible scenarios going on here. Maybe somebody was going to slow down or possibly even stop in the traffic lane in order to get other vehicles to slow down and stop so this woman can at least not be struck by a car. I even thought, where the heck are all of the highway patrol officers and their speed traps? Because they seem to like to be out on these holidays, right? I also wondered if later on that day I would get a news alert about some woman on the northbound 15 freeway just outside of Vegas being struck and killed by an 18-wheeler. All of these thoughts went through my mind for pretty much the rest of my drive home, and I was really shaken up and alarmed by the fact that this woman was standing in the middle of the freeway. I saw her for a split second, and then I spent the rest of my drive home thinking about her. And I can only imagine how much more traumatizing it would have been to have encountered a strange man inside my house that just walked right past me without saying or doing a thing. I saw that woman standing in the middle of the freeway and I literally did nothing. And maybe you can sit there and criticize me for not stopping or for not at least calling 911, but for whatever reasons, I rationalized it in my head as I continued on driving that I didn't need to do that, that it wasn't my responsibility to do that. It's a far cry from what Dylan went through, but in a way, I understand it. The dumbass is due back into court on Thursday, January 12th, 2023. The family of the victims, they're in my thoughts, and they were in my thoughts throughout the holidays. I hope that they have been able to find a small sliver of comfort knowing that the Moscow Police Department, along with the Idaho State Police and the FBI, and not to mention the law enforcement agencies in Pennsylvania and all across the United States that were helping to keep track of the suspect, that they feel like these people, these law enforcement officials, these agencies were all doing their due diligence. And they sacrificed a great deal through Thanksgiving and Christmas and the New Year to make sure that they got this right. I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, until next time, sweet dreams.